You're now listening to episode 64 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Kathy Fecky, co-CEO of The Real Wealth Network and best-selling author of Retire Rich with Rentals. She's an active real estate investor, licensed real estate agent, and former mortgage broker specializing in helping people build multi-million dollar real estate portfolios that generate passive monthly cash flow for life. In this episode, we'll discuss the process behind building a portfolio of cash flow properties, where we are in the current market cycle, cash flow markets, and much more. And be sure to stick around to the end for our debrief and Q&A segments when we answer questions from you, the listener. As a reminder, check out the Ultimate Guide to Tax Planning for Landlords and Buy and Hold Real Estate Investors, which is, of course, a comprehensive free guide to tax planning that can help you save thousands of dollars in taxes. You can find the link in the show notes below or by Googling the Ultimate Guide to Tax Planning for Landlords and Buy and Hold Real Estate Investors. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Kathy, thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little bit of information on your background and how you got to where you are today? Well, I am uh, the co-CEO of Real Wealth Network. We have almost 50,000 members now, uh, investors or people wanting to build wealth through real estate. Our goal was to do that by 2020, so very excited about that. But it was only about 10 years ago that we just started where I was desperate to understand how to create passive income because I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and I didn't want to go out and get a job. The story that I put in my book, Retire Rich with Rentals, is that um, my husband came home one day from his book tour. Uh, he has a book called Extreme Success. And he, he came home, he had a freckle that he went to check out, turned out to be melanoma. The doctor said um, if it spread, he would maybe have just a few months to live and the test looked like it had spread. So it was a really, really crazy time. He is healthy and fine today and we're past that. But at the time we didn't know. And that's that's how I started Real Wealth Network. It was just this desperate desire to take over the family finances so that he could get better and so that I could remain a stay-at-home mom when my kids were little. No, it's, it's an inspiring story. And sometimes you just need that little push to get going. Um, so we understand that through the Wealth Network that you help a lot of investors build portfolios that cash flow, uh, specifically buy and hold properties. Would you be able to take us, you know, high level through what that process looks like? Yeah, of course. So, you know, when I was on this mission to understand, like, how do other people do this thing called passive income? You know, it's this crazy dream that you read about in Rich Dad, Poor Dad of, well, you don't have to work for someone else, work for yourself. But, you know, again, like you said, how, do, how does that really work? So what I learned at the time was that you don't necessarily have to already have money to invest in real estate, which is a myth that most people have that, oh, I, I can't do it. And what I learned on my podcast, I, I had a radio show in San Francisco. I'm actually sitting in a San Francisco <laughs> hotel room right now at a conference. Um, but I had a radio show here 15 years ago, and that's what I was desperately trying to understand and I would interview experts like Robert Kiyosaki. And it was from them that I learned 
oh, you do not need to have money to get started. You just need to know how to get your hands on it, like other people's money, OPM, basically. And um, so this through leverage. So the step number one would be to find out how you can get the money you need to invest in real estate. Like maybe you already have it in a in an IRA or a 401k that you can self-direct, or you have some savings set aside, or you have good credit. There's different ways to leverage yourself to be able to acquire real estate. And I didn't know that. Today, lenders are really just, they're just looking for someone to borrow their money. There's so much money out there. So if you can understand that they want to lend you money, they want that six, seven, eight percent in conventional finance, even four or five percent interest for you to borrow their money. So the money's out there. That is not the excuse. Don't ever use the excuse that you don't have the money because it really, it's out there. So that's number one, understanding your borrowing ability, which would mean getting your credit improved, which can be done. A lot of people don't understand that just because maybe you made some poor choices in your past and maybe didn't make your payments on time or hit some hard times financially, you can get your credit repaired in a matter of months through the right company. So understanding how to do that and how to apply for a loan. That's, that's step one. So, you know, sometimes, you know, some investors, especially, you know, not the ones necessarily that we work with, but sometimes they think that all they're going to have to do is just buy a handful of rental properties. And maybe they do that with no money down and they're just going to ride off into the sunset. But from your experience, does it tend to be that easy or is it a little bit more work than that? That's another great myth is that, you know, HGTV, he has really sexified the job, you know, the process of real estate investing. What? But I know those guys. It's not real. What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, I didn't know that either until I met the fortune builder guys, you know, they had to flip this house show. And boy, when we would talk after hours over drinks, it was like, Oh yeah, we totally acted that out. You know, we didn't make any money on that flip, (laughs) but but you've just got to understand that, Investing for the long haul, it really is a boring process. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is a way to build wealth and replace your income over time. So that that is a bit of a slower process. Now, can you make money faster? Absolutely. There are ways to do that, uh, but it, it's not something you learn instantly. For example, most people do want to flip a house and make money, and most people lose money the first time they do it. Not everyone, but can confirm. <laughs> right? You see that a lot? Hundred percent. People from those losses. <laughs> yep. Yep. Maybe. But yeah, it's sometimes you can get lucky if you buy the right time in the market cycle. That time is not today. But maybe if you bought a house in two thousand nine by and it took you three years to fix it up and did every mistake possible, you probably still made money. But not today when we're kind of at the top of the stock cycle, you can't make any mistakes. At all, because in some places either the market's flat or even falling. And again, in some places, San Jose. Just I'm looking out my window here at San Francisco, and prices have stalled uh, in the high end market. So really tough to make a bunch of money flipping houses. If I were to go buy a rental property here in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's going to take you 30 years to make any money probably on that property because they're so expensive. But there are parts of the country where there's still a buying opportunity. And no, one or two properties is not going to change your life. If you bought a $80,000 fixer in Detroit or Cleveland, you're not going to become a millionaire overnight. But one of the ways that I teach people how you can become a millionaire in maybe 12 to 15 years 
would be to buy 10 of those. So uh, that would take about $200,000 to $250,000 cash, which some people have, some people don't. But around here, you could sell one property. You might've made that kind of equity or you might have it in your 401k that you can borrow from or, or self, it would be hard to make if you self-direct. But if you have $200,000 and you were able to buy 10 $100,000 properties in a place like, you know, again, anywhere but here in California. So it could be in, in Detroit or Cleveland or parts of Houston, uh, Dallas is getting harder, but in, in some growth parks, Orlando area, then that's about twenty dollars to $25,000 down per property. And if you shoot for about a $300 a month cash flow on each property, that's about $36,000 a year of cash flow. And you're not going to be able to retire on that. But if you took that $36,000 a year of cash flow and paid off one property, then you'd have that property paid off in about two years from well, about two and a half years on based on total leverage. That is group of 10 homes, the cash flow from that, you take all the cash flow, pay off one home, you could have that home free and clear in about two and a half years. If you keep doing that, now you've increased your cash flow, do it again, pay off the second home, do it again, pay off the third. You could accelerate the payoff of those properties and have them potentially paid off in 12 to 15 years. Now you've got 10 homes paid off that have probably gone up in value over that time period. And that's a million dollar portfolio starting with about 200,000. So that's one way to get there. But again, it doesn't happen overnight and not everybody has $200,000. So. <laughs> so so we just kind of worked through, you know, investing in rentals is not as passive as it seems. So if somebody owns like 10 properties, are they expecting to retire? And, and what does that retirement actually look like? How, how passive is that? Oh my gosh, we have so many people now. We've been doing this since 2004. So we have a lot of people who trusted me on that and and, um, said, okay, we're going to try this. Because again, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area and people could refi and get that 200,000 out and or just buy a property a year. That's $20,000 they'd save up and buy a property every year. And now I've got people coming to me saying, "It, it worked. I'm retired. I didn't know how I would do it. It didn't look possible. But here I am now paying off my last house of the 10. And that's about bringing in about 10 grand a month. Well, maybe about 8,000 a month in passive income, which is on top of the social security and the other things that they invested in to get, you know, for the retirement. And it's working. So it does work if you buy the right property. And when you say passive, I mean, no, owning a rental property is never totally passive. Totally passive would be, investing in a syndication or I don't feel like the stock market's passive these days, man. You got to be focused on it. Driven, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you're not going to sleep at night. This is not passive. But investing or a note, you know, private pretty passive, but owning real estate, it's not totally passive, but it's more than other things, more than flipping houses. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So in terms of like purchasing, as you're expanding your portfolio, in terms of the acquisition piece, what are some of the metrics that you're kind of looking for? What's like that minimum baseline requirement that each property has to hit in order for you to pull the trigger? It's a great question. First and foremost, we look for job growth. We want to be in neighborhoods where there are jobs because you want your tenants working, right? <laughs> I mean, some people don't care if you're buying Section 8 property. Maybe you don't care if your, your tenant works or not, but I do. 
So we look for a property in areas where there's job growth and, and where those jobs are jobs that are here to stay. And that would be tech related for sure that there's growth there. Uh, medical field, there's massive growth because there's so, such an aging population with 10,000 people turning 65 every single day. That's why we really like Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, there's reasons that are still very affordable and there's massive growth in, in the medical community there. If you haven't looked into that, look up you know the Cleveland Clinic and, and some of the things happening there. We've had a house there that's been rented to a doctor for five years. He's never been late. I can't figure out why on earth he doesn't own his own home, but he rents from us and it's worked out well. We like what's happening there. We, we know that or the Orlando, Tampa area is one of the fastest growing areas in the country, job growth-wise and population growth. And that could also be, it's, it's affordable. There's uh, no state income tax. And you've got all these baby boomers looking for an affordable place to retire. So we're seeing massive growth there. So first thing I look at is location. That location, 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 that is key. You've got to make sure you're in the path of progress because there are going to be certain areas that get left behind, just like in any changing economy. Right now, I'm at the um, Singularity University Conference in San Francisco. If you're not sure what that is, uh, it is <laughs> global challenges of 2019. This is like the highest high of high tech that you'll ever find. People from all around the world flying in to uh, talk about advances in technology. And I can tell you that the next 10 years are going to be the most transformational that we've ever seen in history. We're not even going to recognize the world that we're in 10 years from now. So you've got to stay on top of trends or you will get left behind in a way that has never been experienced before. So that's why, you know, that's why I love doing shows like this, where people can stay on top of things and not think that if they do what worked 10 years ago, it'll work in the next decade. It's not going to. It's, it is, there's massive transformation. In part, I, Uber is going to have their Uber, I forget what it's called, but they're flying Ubers. That's going to be very common in the next five years. I'm, I'm not kidding. I can't wait. I want to fly an Uber so bad. But so how is that going to change real estate? It's going to change it a lot. They're, all they're talking about is the autonomous driving, which means that you can kind of live anywhere and your car takes you to work. And you know it's not so bad to sit in traffic if you're working and not driving. <laughs> so lots of exciting changes coming. Guys, so kind of just to summarize what you said there, there's a few things you look for when you're looking at markets. You're looking for job growth, stable jobs, which and trends and where the trends of the jobs are moving. Tech right now is big. Uh, medical is big, especially in Cleveland, Orlando, Tampa. Those are some some good markets to look for there. When you're looking for you know a ground level at those properties, you know if you had to pick a metric, say cash on cash return or internal rate of return, which one of those metrics would be most important when looking at I guess the property level. You know, I think what people are going to have to realize is that cap rates are not going to be as exciting as they've been. Cap rates are compressing and that's pretty much across the board. And that's hard for a lot of people who maybe got into real estate over the last 10 years. We were getting 20% plus returns. So, you know, every year it kind of gets worse, so to speak. So even in some of these high cash flow areas, you know, a lot of institutional funds are, are happy with 4 or 5% returns. It's, it's crazy. So you kind of have this choice of if you really want the higher cap rate, the higher return on a rental property, you're probably going to have to put a little sweat equity into that. Um, you're going to have to try to find a really good deal and may not be the best part of town and you know just do minimal repairs on that um, in order to get the higher return. But is it really a higher return in the long run? 
know, these are the kind of questions you got to ask yourself. We have a fund where we raised money from investors who didn't really want to be managing even a property that's, that has a property manager in place is too much for some people. <laughs> you know, if you're a busy Silicon Valley engineer, you don't want to do anything else. So there's people that just invest our money and buy the properties. So we did a little bit of a mix of higher cash flow properties in third tier markets and then combined that with lower cash flow properties in growth markets. Um, but you know, not everybody's got hundreds of properties that they can do that with. So we were kind of able to like average it out so the returns still come in around uh, 7 to 8%. Because really low cash flow, say in not really low, but lower in Florida versus Detroit, where we were getting kind of still double digit returns, but balanced out. But where are you going to get the most appreciation? You know, so, uh, surprisingly, it's been in Detroit, actually, <laughs> the place we thought we'd get the least appreciation, we've had the highest. Um, not surprising to me because uh, the prices were so low to begin with. But the bottom line is you're just not going to get the kind of returns that maybe you got a few years ago. Prices have gone up. Rents are not climbing quite as quickly. Fortunately, interest rates have gone down. So that has increased a little bit of the return there. Um, So again, for us, it's kind of like, what does the person want? I I have a woman who just sold a building in San Francisco for $3 million. And she wants to exchange into single family homes. It's kind of interesting, but she just wants it all spread out. So that's like 30 homes. (laughs) She wants it all in the Kansas City area. So, you know, it's kind of like everybody's got their thing, but we're helping her do that because that's where she feels the most comfortable in the middle of the country and where it seems stable to her and the returns are a bit higher than if if she were to go into Orlando where actually there is more growth, but maybe, you know, she doesn't feel safe there. It depends on the investor. Perfect. So we are an accounting and tax podcast. I wanted to ask you, throw a tax question out there but not a, a trick question by any means. Of all of the folks that are in the Real Wealth Network, what do you feel like is the number one or the top tax question that you often see or that you see most often come up? Hmm. That is a good question. Well, what I see come up with new investors or people who just don't really know anything about real estate, they've just done what they were told and they just invest in their you know, 401k at work or they whatever, you know, they don't know real estate. They want to buy a primary residence to get tax benefits. And I just am like, oh man, you have no idea. Like you have no idea the kind of tax benefits you can get from owning rental property instead. So really just starting there with the average American, there's still a belief that I got to buy real estate. I got to buy a home so I can get the tax benefits. When in fact, it's not that great anymore, especially when you live in a high price market like California, but you can get so many benefits from owning rental property. So the question, I don't even think they know the question to ask. Um, they just want tax breaks. So that just unleashes, as you know, a whole slew of ways that they can actually benefit much more by buying rental property and getting all the tax benefits that way and maybe renting their primary residence instead. I don't know if you, I, I mean, that's not going to work everywhere, but in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, much better choice. Instead of putting $200,000 down to buy a primary residence, a million dollar piece of dump, you know, instead go buy 10 rental properties and rent in San Francisco. Why on earth would you want to have a million dollar property in a city that is known for earthquakes or anywhere else in California that's known for fires? 
have all your eggs in one basket, whereas you could just rent and own investment property, diversify, have it spread out across the country. That just makes a lot more sense to me. Absolutely. And uh, this might be a good time to plug the ultimate tax guide to landlords and buy and hold real estate investors. We just built that out a few weeks ago and it's taken off on our Google searches and social media. So check that out. But it is the one-stop shop to all of your tax questions. It's a 10,000 word article. It's like a 40 page ebook that essentially is free and it's just sitting on our website. So we'll link to that in the show notes. But Tom, I think I cut you off. So I was going to say, I'm, I'm a big believer in the renting where you live and buying where you can rent to others. Because, you know, to Kathy's point, it's, you know, why have all your money in an asset that's not producing any income for you, especially if it's like a primary residence and you're living there full time? Well, why do that? It's better to spread your money around, spread it across different areas, especially if you live in San Francisco or New York. Better to take that angle to it. But, you know, kind of along these same accounting and tax lines as before. We often see a lot of investors have some trouble keeping good records and understanding what's going on behind the numbers of their properties. How do you see uh, people with wealth network handling their bookkeeping? Are they doing spreadsheets? Are they using property management software, uh, QBO, a combination of both? What do you see? That is a very good question. We, we've had a few accountants come in and show people how to use Quicken and how to use QuickBooks for managing their uh, real estate portfolios. I think through the use of groups, I, I don't do it anymore. I, I have a bookkeeper. Um, we also recommend, you know, getting a good bookkeeper if you have a large portfolio, um, because that's that's one of those things where, um, you know, if you're running a business, you shouldn't necessarily probably do, be doing your own books unless you're really really good at it. So it's, it's just one of those things that maybe makes sense to invest in and in having somebody else do it for you. So we have a list of bookkeepers that we do refer people to. I, Certainly open to suggestions because I know that technology is changing on a daily basis and there might be something out there I don't know about right now. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of interesting. We have a lot of clients, uh, small and very large, and we have consistently asked, why are we forcing everybody to jump on QuickBooks Online for their landlording business? And we've, we've recently started to develop a, a Google Sheets system um, that allows you to essentially run all your accounting, automate your accounting, and then push out uh, different events or, or based on different triggers that happen in the G Sheet. And we have found it to be much more efficient than running it through like a QuickBooks Online or Zero. And obviously, it's also free because G Sheets are free. So it's been an interesting past couple of months. We've been trialing this with a few of our clients. And uh, kind of figuring out all the bugs and the kinks, and we'll be rolling it out probably uh, in a much larger capacity at some later point, either 2019 or early 2020. But it's it's something that we always struggle with too. We see a lot of people default to the professional grade accounting software or to the property management software, which you know, property <laughs> management software is great for the property level transactions, but not so great for the actual accounting that needs to be done. But then we also were struggling with why are we forcing people onto this professional software where you really need to be an accountant or there's a very large learning curve to really get it straight. Instead, let's just throw up on Google Sheets. Let's make a system there where we can create a dashboard that can be easily manipulated. Most of the investors we work with know how to use a spreadsheet, right? So we'll create something that they already know how to use and that they can easily manipulate. Uh, we'll kind of lock down the backend data that feeds it. But it's been an interesting it's been an interesting build out and trial so far. So we'll have to keep it posted. Please. I mean, one of the things we've been trying to develop is a spreadsheet like that that would show people this sort of concept I, I have of what if you bought several properties and you took the cash flow to either pay down one of the loans or 
acquire another property, what that might look like in 10 years and a spreadsheet that could calculate that. So I don't know if that's part of what you're working on, but I know there would be so much demand for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that it would be an interesting metric to throw in there. One of the things that we were doing was just like, you know, how do you look at your portfolio and make decisions, right? Like if you're picking an accountant, a lot of these guys will say, well, we reconcile bank accounts. Well, most people don't even know what reconcile means. So like you're selling me on something that I don't even understand. Instead of you just say, Hey, we reconcile the bank accounts, we do the transactions, but we're also going to build a dashboard where you can track metrics. And what this dashboard is going to show you is the monthly cash flow that you receive the cash flow, not the taxable profit, but the monthly cash flow, how long does that take to recover your equity? If it's more than eight years, then you're less than a 12% return. So do we sell the property? Do we cash out the equity in the property? Or do we, we just keep holding the property knowing that we're, we now have a, a smaller return there? So that's kind of what we're driving at is helping people really make those buy, sell, or uh, uh, refinance type of decisions. But I like your approach to it too. That's a very interesting take on it. Well, it's, it's a, my daughter is uh, just getting married and starting a family. And uh, there's so much that goes into that merging of, of money when you start a family, you know, to kind of learn how to have that family budget and, you know, know how to save aside money for investments and, and build your future. I mean, it's, it's amazing how little we're taught that in school or, you know, life skills in general. It's just like, you got to figure it out. <laughs> Well, that AP chemistry class that I took back in the day has definitely provided a ton of value. Sure. <laughs> that is yeah. extremely sarcastic. sarcastic. I, I don't think I passed that class, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I did either, but I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, with that said, you know, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about you and what you do at the Real Wealth Network, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you just go to realwealthnetwork.com. Sign up for free, and on that on the website, there is data on about the the top I don't know fifteen cities that we see are in the path of progress that are growing, yeah, reinvesting in themselves, are landlord friendly, and where properties can still be purchased for you know that, where that average income is in line with the average home price, so they're not in a bubble as opposed to a lot of areas where the affordability is completely out of whack. Um, there are parts of the country where you can ride through any kind of impending recession pretty easily. Like, and so anyway, if you go to realwealthnetwork.com, you get access to a lot of data on the best cities for investing. And then in those cities, we have set up teams to help you make it a more passive investment. So in each city, we'll have uh, property managers that we've worked with for a long time that really take care of our members, renovation teams, agents who really specialize in property in the right markets, again, in the path of progress. So many real estate agents don't know a thing about investing in real estate. So don't get your advice from a real estate agent. So yeah, so the information is free on our website. And then I also wrote a book called Retire Rich with Rentals that you can get on Amazon. And it's a checklist to make sure that you're really protecting yourself when invest out how you can truly build long-term wealth uh, starting with a little bit of money and using bank money to get you there. But you've got to pick the right property in the right market. And so Retire Rich with Rentals is a step-by-step process on making sure that you do the right things to get the right property. Awesome. Well, thanks again for taking the time to come on the show today. Looking forward to getting this out there. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me. So we just wrapped up the interview with Kathy Fecky today. Uh, learned a lot of great stuff about markets and what to look for in markets, strong job growth. 
how to look at trends and where the jobs are going, where the population is going. And some important insights I think we found out was that medical is on the rise as 10,000 people are turning 65 each year. And if you follow those medical jobs, you're bound to find good markets. And some of the ones that Kathy named specifically were Orlando, Tampa, Cleveland, with Cleveland Medical Clinic being there. And also, I know that certain other markets, if you just look at like Naples, Florida, you look at Sarasota, Florida, you look at wherever people are retiring to, you're going to find those medical jobs and you're going to find opportunities for either senior assisted living or residential housing for sure. Absolutely. And like Kathy said, those medical jobs, those are jobs that are not going anywhere. And that's a big driver for her investment strategy. I thought that was really cool to kind of walk through with her. I also thought it was neat that she she kind of has a dual strategy where she will invest in high cash flow markets, but they might be lower tier in terms of growth. So she'll invest that way, but then she'll also invest in low cash flow markets that are in the higher tier for growth. So she's kind of investing in some cash flow. She's also investing in some appreciation. Or she, it sounds like she has some appreciation plays there. Obviously, I think that the appreciation plays are more risky, but if you can afford to take the risk, I think that they can pay off pretty big time uh, if you make the right investments. Absolutely. I think something else to point out, which maybe wasn't explicitly stated, but uh, I kind of got graphs from there was, you know, if you're looking to invest over the next several years, uh, there is a chance we will be going into some type of downturn, recession, pullback whatever. People have various opinions, but people will all pretty much agree that we're closer to the top than the bottom. And you might want to focus on looking at that cash flow because if you can buy a property that's cash flowing, then you're much more likely to, I guess, survive the downturn than to buy a property that's not cash flowing. And then if the downturn hits and your plan was to sell or refi that property and you're unable to do so for whatever reason, um, at least if you had a cash flowing property, you would be able to make it through and hold that asset until you came out the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things that we asked her about was the top tax question that a lot of folks in the real wealth network tend to ask. And I thought it was interesting that she said that the you know the average American thinks that just buying real estate as a primary residence is going to yield a lot of tax benefits. Um, I think that we as tax CPAs, real estate CPAs, really just kind of think that, I mean, I mean, most of our clients are pretty sophisticated. They know that investing in real estate provides tax benefits. They might not necessarily know exactly what, uh, but I thought that it was interesting that the vast majority of Americans think that uh, that just buying a primary residence will provide you with, te- with tax benefits. And it certainly does provide you with some tax benefits, but just as Kathy said, nowhere near what rental properties will end up providing you with. You invest with rentals or in rentals, you get depreciation, you can write off all these business expenses any sort of mileage, travel, anything like that, you can start writing off your home office. The tax world really kind of opens up to you once you invest in rentals. And you know, speaking of depreciation, that is one of the greatest gifts to real estate investors, to landlords. The ability to manipulate depreciation to kind of fit your current tax strategy is just incredible. You can use cost segregation studies. Uh, you can run your expenditures through the tangible property regs. And maybe they're repairs, maybe they're not repairs, but even if they are capital improvements, you can classify them as five, seven, 15 year property. You really have a lot of flexibility when it comes to buying rental real estate. And if you're not sure what depreciation is, um, depreciation is essentially an expense that the IRS grants you that you can take every single year. You don't have to outlay any cash in order to deduct depreciation on your tax return. What it's supposed to do is model the deterioration of the house over time. 
And that's what depreciation does. So if I buy a $100,000 property, I allocate 10,000 bucks to land, 90,000 bucks to improvements. I get roughly a $4,000 annual depreciation deduction, but I don't actually have to outlay $4,000 in cash every single year to claim that deduction. It's just a free deduction that I get to take every single year. All right. So moving on right into the Q&A section. Uh, Remember, listeners, if you want to have your question answered, go ahead and head over to www.therealestatecpa.com backslash podcasts. That's podcast with an S. And uh, go ahead and drop your question in the box and we may just answer it live. Um, We have a question here today from a Suzanne. And Suzanne asks... What are the most common misconceptions or confusing or myths that uh, new real estate investors have when they're just getting into the real estate investing space when it comes to taxes? I would say one, I'm not 100% sure about the most confusing or the biggest myths, but definitely one thing that we run across a lot, even from other CPAs, is not understanding how to go down a HUD statement or your closing disclosure and how to properly allocate the purchase price between building and land, and then also how to properly account for those settlement costs. I can't tell you how many times we see people just book the entire purchase price plus the settlement costs and call it a building, and then they depreciate that entire value. That is incorrect. You have to allocate some amount to land. There's also a ton of folks, even CPAs, that will just book the gross settlement costs. So if I buy a property for 150 k and I have 10000 bucks of settlement costs, They'll book the entire $10,000 of settlement costs to the building. Um, But that is also the incorrect treatment because some of those settlement costs will be currently deductible, like the amount that you paid for insurance, the amount that you paid for daily interest. Uh, Additionally, some of those settlement costs for your obtaining a loan, you'll have to actually break those out as loan costs and amortize the costs. Amortization is very similar to depreciation. You amortize those costs over the loan's term. So don't be fooled by your tax accountant. 88% of the returns that I review during the sales process have errors in them, compliance errors, or they have missed opportunities. You know what's hilarious? The remaining 12% are typically self-prepared. Isn't that insane? (laughs) It's crazy to me. I like look at this stuff and I'm just shaking my head. So the 88% there, and that's a true fact. I've been tracking this since January, 2019. 88% have errors or missed opportunities in them. But one of the big errors that I see is Generally, the taxpayer, the client doesn't know how to go and look at the basis of the property that's been recorded to verify that it's been recorded correctly. And I see a lot of the errors associated with those settlement costs, just incorrectly booking them. I've seen CPAs who um, are somewhat well-known in the space. What they'll do is they will book the insurance cost on Schedule E, and then they'll also book the insurance cost to the basis and depreciate it. So they're double counting uh, you know, currently deductible settlement costs. So just keep an eye out for something like that. 100%. You know, and one of the things that I see a lot of people get confused on is they think that they're going to go and buy a rental property, maybe run a cost segregation study, maybe not, but that the losses will help them reduce their overall tax liability from their W-2 income. That's like one of the major misconceptions. And I see even that on the syndicate level, there'll be syndicators who go and tell their investors who are limited partners that, oh, you know, you'll be able to use the losses from our cost segregation study to reduce the taxes you pay on your W-2 income or perhaps another business they might be running. And that's just simply not always the case in order to do that. And we've beat this to death. You need to be a real estate professional. But um, if you're not a real estate professional, you cannot take the losses from your rental real estate 
against your ordinary income. However, and we probably discussed this before too, what that does allow you to do is not pay taxes on your rental income. And what that does is reduce your effective tax rate because you're earning more money, but you're not paying taxes on it. So your money increases, but the tax you pay does not, and that decreases your effective tax rate. You're saying if I'm over the $150,000 threshold and I'm not a real estate professional, it's not all lost if I have passive losses because the passive losses just mean that I haven't actually paid any tax on the cash flow that I've received from my real estate. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. And also, uh, if your modified adjusted gross income, also called MAGI, is below $150,000, you can take up to a $25,000 deduction of rental losses against your ordinary income. And just to get a little bit more granular with that, exactly how it works, if you make under $100,000, you can take the full 20, up to the $25,000 deduction. And once your income, your MAGI starts to go above $100,000, that deduction decreases $1 for every $2 of MAGI above 100 until you reach $150,000. And a great example I like to give is the middle of the road example. If you're making $125,000, the highest deduction you could take is $12,500 of losses against your ordinary income. Yeah. And so then anything in that example, anything above twelve five, dollars uh, and this is passive losses, right? So if I have $100,000 of passive losses, I can only take $12,500 due to my magic being $125K. The remainder is suspended and carried forward. Correct. And then you could use the suspended losses at some point, either against the, the rental income you generate in the future, should it be positive, or when, later on when you sell the property. So they don't get lost forever, as some people um, are scared of. Uh, they just get suspended and you can use them in the future. Perfect. All right. So we have another question from Kyle. Kyle asks, do I need to have an LLC set up in order to deduct business expenses? The answer to that question is no, you do not need to have an LLC set up to deduct business expenses. You can do so as a sole proprietor operating just in your own personal name. And I like to just kind of add that in order for an expense to be deductible, it needs to be ordinary and necessary. It also needs to be current, meaning that it affects this year, not over the next 10 years. Like a new roof is going to go for many, many years. That's not a current expense, but it's really that ordinary and necessary test. So to determine ordinary, are other folks similar to you, similar to the business that you're running or similar to the landlord portfolio that you're running? Are they taking those expenses? A guard dog, for example, might be necessary, but it's not going to be ordinary. So that will be challenged if you take any expenses related to guard dogs. And then the necessary side of the coin is it has to be necessary to conduct your business. So a $50 meal is ordinary from a business perspective, that's a normal thing. And it's also sometimes necessary depending on what the meal was for. But a $500 meal, again, meals, ordinary. So it meets the ordinary test. But a $500 meal is most likely not necessary for our landlord uh, listeners. But anyway, I hope that that helps kind of explain that. I think it does. And remember, if you want to have your question answered, live on the air here, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com backslash podcast, drop your question in the box, hit that submit button, and uh, we may just answer it live. Hey, everyone. I just want to let you know that we're putting on special year-end tax planning virtual workshops in September, October, and November of this year to make you aware of the tax strategies that might just save you a few thousand dollars before the year winds down. 
If you're interested in learning more or want to sign up for one, visit www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshops. Again, that's www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshops or follow the link in the show notes below and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.